We are in chapter 25 of 2 Samuel. And this is the continuation of this section of the two foals. So now we come to the second foal, and that is Nabal. And Nabal will be spared by David as well. So chapter 25, verse 1. Samuel died, and all of Israel assembled, mourned him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. And then David left and went down to the desert of Paran. Samuel is now dead, which means there's no more prophet. Now what's interesting is just in the last paragraph, Saul finally publicly declared that David would be king one day. He's probably known that for a long time, but never has the narrator had him publicly declare this. So he publicly declares that Saul is, David is going to be king, and now that he's declared that, Samuel's death is now recorded. As if it's like now the prophet can leave because the current king has finally acknowledged the will of God for the next king. But what's also interesting is that Samuel is now, or David is now completely on his own. And Samuel was the only other person who had the power and the authority to oppose Saul as king. And now that person is gone. So David is even more desperate with literally no prophetic support whatsoever that we know of. But it also demonstrates the fact that even without a prophet, God is still taking care of David. You don't need a prophet. You don't need another human. God doesn't need anybody to do that. He can use people like that, but he doesn't need that. So that brings us to the next scenario. Now, remember we left off. Saul has finally said, okay, David, you're more righteous than I am. I should not be trying to kill you. That's not right of me. I will stop pursuing you. I will let you go. This is for the first time ever why David's on the run that he's ever been given relief from Saul pursuing him, which means for the first time he's now kind of relaxed. He doesn't look over his shoulder anymore. He doesn't have to be running from like one area to the next area to the next area constantly all the time. And so he begins to settle down. And he settles down for at least several months in a, a region called Carmel. And Carmel is south of Jerusalem, close to the Dead Sea. Carmel is south of Jerusalem. And he's settled here. We know this because David is going, it's sheep shearing time. And David is living next to Nabal. And he says, the entire time that your sheep have been out here milling around for the last several months or so, we've never harmed them. So this implies that he's been there for a while, which means he is able to settle down, so to speak, for a while because he's now at peace with Saul for now. So chapter 25, verse 2, this, there was a man of Imanon whose business was in Carmel. And this man was very wealthy. He owned 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. At that time, he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And she was both wise and beautiful, but the man was harsh, and his deeds were evil, and he was a Calebite. We're first introduced to this guy, and we're told his name is Nabal. Nabal in Hebrew means fool. Now remember, there's a good chance that maybe he was not called this by his parents, but that this has become his nickname over time. And that it could be, even Abigail, his wife, will call him Nabal. And it's probably not much of a good marriage when your, your wife is calling you fool all the time. It could be that this is a nickname that he's been given behind his back. And that there's definitely not a good relationship here. But this word Nabal can also be translated wineskin. And later in the story, we're going to find out that he is getting drunk on wineskin. 
and it refers to one marked by, or basically one refer, referred to as marked by wine. So not only can it mean full wineskin, but also can be one who is constantly in wine and involved in wine and drinking wine. And the root word, nabel, where it comes from, actually means something that is dropped, or nabella means corpse. So there's a huge pun here, because this guy is a fool. He is a drunk on wine. When he dies, he's going to drop down dead with a heart attack, and he's going to become a corpse. This word is a very beautifully used word to use, refer to all these puns. Not only that, Proverbs 30, verse 22 says, Fools and wealth are considered a dangerous combination. So he's an extremely wealthy man. He's also a fool, and that's a horrible combination to be brought in. So everything about this guy, you're setting you up that he's not a good guy. So not only is he wealthy, but we're also told that he's very shrewd or um, deceptive in his business dealings. So he's known to be a wealthy man who cheats other people and his business dealings. And nobody can do anything about it because he's the powerful man of the village. So this guy is definitely not a good guy. And he's set up as a parallel to Saul as another wealthy man who is a fool, who is being controlled by something else, his rage and the evil spirit, and they will eventually die as well. So this is who we're introduced to. But he's also married to Abigail. And Abigail, on the contrary, is said to be very wise. And Abigail is actually going to act like the Holy Spirit or David's conscience in this story. Because David's not going to be using his conscience very much in this particular story. But we're also told that she's very beautiful. And what does that mean? Something bad is going to happen. Okay, it's not going to work out well. He's also a descendant of Caleb. And this is also significant because remember back in the book of Judges, we're told that there was a descendant of Moses who was incredibly corrupt and bad now. And now we're introduced to Caleb's descendant who is corrupt and bad now. And the idea is that all these genealogies are becoming corrupt in Israel over time. And so he's a descendant of Caleb, Calebite. It's also sheep shearing time. Now sheep shearing time is basically where they shear the wool off the sheep. But remember, when you're in the business of harvesting grain and harvesting sheep, as in the wool, you don't make any money the entire year. Your crops are growing. You have nothing to sell. So you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until eventually that one month out of the year, you can harvest your crops or you can shear your sheep and then you can sell it and everything you sell is pretty much what you have to live on for the rest of the year. That's the farmer's, the keeper of livestock's lifestyle. But it also means if you have a really bountiful crop and wool or harvest, you're going to throw a big party because it's like oh my, this is like not only your big Christmas bonus, but your only paycheck for the entire year. So it's a huge celebration. So this is the time that you pay all your workers, you pay off a lot of your debts and bills, things that you had to pay to keep the animals and the crops going, and you throw a party. So it's sheep shearing time. They're she shearing the sheep, and they're stocking up for this big celebration. So they're getting food together and festivities together, and all these people are getting invited, mostly the workers who have helped Nabal throughout the year, and they're going to celebrate this party. And that's where David comes in the picture. He's been living next to the fields of these sheep for the last several months in a more relaxed kind of a scenario. Verse 4, When David heard in the desert that Nabal was shearing his sheep, 
he sent ten servants, saying to them, Go to Carmel to see Nabal and give him greetings in my name. Then you will say to my brother, Peace to you in your house, peace to all that is yours. Now I hear that you are shearing sheep for you. When your shepherds were with us, we neither insulted them nor harmed them. The whole time that they were in Carmel, ask your own servants and they can tell you. May my servants find favor in your sight, for we have come at the time of a holiday. Please provide us, your servants, and your son David with whatever you can spare. So David, remember, has been on a run for a long time. He doesn't really have a lot to feed his soldiers and take care of his family members and all that kind of stuff. So now it's sheep sharing time. He comes as an extremely wealthy person at the peak of his profits. And he sends 10 servants and says, hey, invite us to the party and let us eat some things and maybe give us a little extra too. So it's like reverse Ruth here. Instead of it being generously bestowed upon him, he's asking for it. Now, this is kind of odd in some ways. In some ways, he, this is legitimate. He, it's, it, the culture values hospitality. He's in need. He's going to a wealthy person seeking hospitality. God has required people to be hospitable to people in need. And the law, that kind of stuff, nothing's wrong with this. But at the same time, that's kind of brave. I would never have the courage to do that. That would be kind of like going up to somebody and saying, like, look, we've been neighbors for the last three years. The entire time that I've been your neighbor, I haven't thrown rocks at your windows. I haven't broken in and stolen anything. I didn't, like, kick your kids in the backyard while they were playing. So I see that it's the Christmas holidays. Invite me in to eat some food as a reward. In (laughs) fact, not only that, when some people did attack your kids, I fought them off for you. That's basically what David's saying. I've protected your people even though I wasn't paid to do it, and I didn't insult them or hurt them even though I could have. That's very brash and very brave. At the same time, you're sending 10 men to communicate this message. It's a little forward. It might even suggest a little bit of an Al Capone kind of extortion kind of a thing here. Like, hey, you're a business in town. Um, Give us about $500 for your security or something bad might happen to your shop. There seems to be a little bit of that. At the same time, It is not uncommon for men who are gathered together in large war parties to go out and just clobber everybody and take whatever they want in the ancient world. That is the way everybody does it. And yet David hasn't. He makes it very clear. I haven't attacked you. I've actually protected you. I have 600 men. I could have easily wiped you out and taken whatever I want. That's the implication. And so even though this is a little brash and maybe even a little bit of strong arm Um, extortion, like I could have killed you but I didn't, so now feed me at the same time he hasn't done that, and it says that David is going countercultural despite the huge temptation and you have to realize that this is a very dominant thing in their culture for men in war parties to act like this so this is a huge temptation that would feel like, I've never been tempted like that as an American but that's not our culture And that's not the way that we've been trained and raised to act all the time. And yet David has been, and yet he's gone to it. So there is a little bit like, wow, David, that's kind of jacked up. But at the same time, you're not as jacked up as like all these other people out there. And the narrator is showing that David is trying as hard as he can to do the right thing. Verse 9, so David's servants went and spoke all these words to Nabal in David's name. And then they paused. But Nabal responded to David's servants, Who is this David, and who is this son of Jesse? 
This is the time when many servants are breaking away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give them to these men? I don't even know where they have come from. Now, Nabal's answer is basically forget you. He does not know. It's not that he doesn't know who David is. You don't say, who is this David and who is this son of Jesse? If you know the guy's father, you know who he is. That's not the point that he's making. The point is, who do you think you are? To think that you can come here and demand food from me. Many people are breaking away from their masters these days. Now, who is David's master in Nabal's eyes? Saul. He worked for Saul. Saul is the king. And Nabal sees David as a traitor. So basically, you know, I supported Saul. I voted for Saul in the elections, and I've got like Saul hope and change stickers on my back of my camels. (laughs) And you are the vice president who kind of betrayed him and went off and joined the Russians. And I don't appreciate that. So who do you think you are that you can come in here and act like you're my president now and you can demand taxes from me and I didn't vote for you and nor are you supporting my nation? And that's kind of how he's responding here. That's the way he sees it. So David's servants went on their way and when they had returned, they came and told David all these things. Then David instructed his men, each of you strap on your sword. So each one strapped on his sword, and David strapped on his sword, and about 400 men followed David up, while 200 stayed behind with the equipment. What does David plan to do? Kill. You don't tell all your 400 men to strap on their swords to go deal with one old guy, because he kind of insulted you with his not giving you taxes, unless you plan to kill him and everybody else with him as well. David is so enraged by this lack of hospitality that he basically decides that he's going to go and kill everybody as a result of this insult. And we know that because if you keep reading, David even confesses with his own mouth, as surely as Yahweh lives, by this time tomorrow there would have been one male left alive in this village. I was going to kill them all. Which means you can tell here that David has been doing everything in his power to resist the temptation to be this. This isn't something that he really truly is a completely different man, unlike everybody else out there this time period. He has been very tempted to go this route. And it's a huge thing that he's fighting and resisting. And then when he's incredibly insulted, he goes into this anger and rage, and he can't control himself anymore in a logical kind of way. And he goes into what he's been trying to stop himself from doing. So he launches into a war party, to take care of. Now, who does this make, remind you of? Who does this beginning to look like? Saul. This is exactly what Saul did with the priest of Nob. And David's looking exactly like that. It's not that he is starting to look like Saul, but Saul's already looked like the culture, and David's starting to go that route too. Verse 14. But one of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to greet our Lord, but he screamed at them. These men, now that gives you a different picture. Nabal wasn't just like saying this. He's actually yelling at David's men. The men were very good to us. They did not insult us, nor did we sustain any loss during the entire time we were together in the field. Now these men back up David's good character for at least that time period. It's kind of gone out the window now. Both night and day they were protective, protective wall for us in the entire time we were with them. While we were tending our flocks, Now be aware of this and see what you can do. 
for disaster has been planned for our Lord and his entire household. He is such a wicked person that no one tells him anything. They basically make it clear they're going to Abigail, the wise one. They're not going to the fool who is wicked. And they make it very clear, like, nobody tells him anything. Nobody goes to him for help or advice. Nobody wants him to make any decisions because he just makes the bad decision all the time. So they go to the wife to seek out help. So Abigail quickly took 200 loaves of bread, two containers of wine, five prepared sheep, five seahs of roast grain, a hundred bunches of raisins, and two hundred lumps of pressed figs. She loaded them on a donkey and said to her servants, Go on ahead of me. I will come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. She loads up the donkey. Now, this stuff is all easily accessible because she's taking it from the party that they're about ready to have. And what's interesting is that not only did the men go to her instead of seeking out Nabal, but it says that she left and she did not tell Nabal. This is the exact phrase of Jonathan going out to attack Michmash, but he did not tell his father. The idea is that neither one of these guys are respectable, and nor would you want them meddling in the situation because they're just going to screw it up. Now, granted, yes, it is wrong that Abigail feels the need to go out to David and try to bribe him from killing everybody. She should never have to do that. However, going out and bribing him and staying alive as an entire village is a much wiser decision than going in a rampage, yelling and screaming at the men who represent a 600-man army. So yes, Nabal kind of is more correct, like, ah, this is kind of wrong of you to demand food from me when we don't have an arrangement. But at the same time, you don't do that to an army. Yes, it's wrong, but it's also more wise to keep your village alive than to exert your pride and stand on a, well, that's just not right. It doesn't matter. That's not the world we live in. It's not the world we live in. Unless you have the power to make change, which he doesn't, that's not the world we live in. 